Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. I am your host, Anna Fishson, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Patricia Garavici about her most recent book, Transgender Psychoanalysis, A Lacanian Perspective on Sexual Difference, published by Rutledge in 2017, so this year. Uh, Dr. Garavici is quite prolific and a regular here on the New Books Network. She's the co-founder and director of the Philadelphia Lacan Group and associate faculty in the psychoanalytic studies minor at the University of Pennsylvania. She's also honorary member at the Institute for Psychoanalytic Training and Research, or IPTAR, and a member at APRECU, a psychoanalytic association both in New York. Patricia is featured in the documentary film Psychoanalysis in El Barrio. Uh, for those who have not seen it, it's an excellent film. I highly recommend it. It's on uh, PepWeb. Her books include um, The Puerto Rican Syndrome, published in 2003, Please Select Your Gender, From the Invention of Hysteria to the Democratizing of Transgenderism, from Rutledge, uh, 2010, about which she was interviewed by my colleague Tracy Morgan on this channel. Um, she also has uh, two edited collections so far, <laughs> both with Manya Steinkohler, Lacan on Madness, Madness, Yes, You Can't, uh, from Rutledge, 2015, about which I, I interviewed her also on this podcast, and, um, and Lacan, Psychoanalysis and Comedy, out last year uh, by Cambridge University Press. Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Anna. Happy to be here. And nice really to be called well. a regular. <laughs> You're right. So this is the only club one wants to belong to. <laughs> Why, thank you. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's get to it. Um, I had the opportunity, actually, to read uh, your book, Please Select Your Gender, as well. And uh, like transgender psychoanalysis, it's a very uh, rich, multi-layered account. Uh, much was covered there, including a lot of history and a psychoanalytic theorization of trans memoir writing. So I'm curious um, why you decided to write another book on this topic. Uh, in some ways, I mean, from the perspective of the media, a lot has changed for trans people in the last five years or so. Certainly there's an increased visibility and activism. Cis people are better informed, perhaps. Uh, you know, since Trump's election, of course, we've had, we've seen an attack on trans rights, most recently to do with serving in the military. Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, but please tell us about what changes you perceive, and here, also here in the clinic, and among psychoanalysts, and tell us if there's been a shift in your thinking since the publication of the earlier book in 2010. Yes, when I published Please Select Your Gender, that was back in 2010, I didn't know then that I was going to be riding a sort of wave that became something more like a tsunami that has mm -hmm. swept away uh, all maybe the, the perhaps ignorance that non-trans people, that now we can identify them more openly as cis people, the, the transgender experience became more and more visible. Uh, there is something that I already detected in the subtitle of Please Select Your Gender, the harmful of the title was the democratizing of transgenderism because I was already seeing then a, a mediatic presence of a trans persons that 
has reached a level that I couldn't have never imagined back then in 2010. So I felt compelled to maybe account for the changes, uh, not only in the social context, which I think had changed, and as you mentioned rightfully, it is still changing and it is still in a very precarious situation. Many of the uh, civil rights achievements of the trans community that were perhaps taken for granted uh, before November 2016 mm -hmm. now are being questioned, like the, the presence of uh, trans persons in the military. So things are constantly shifting, but also there have been important changes from my clinical position. I, I, I learn, and, and again, this is the wonderful thing of the clinical practice, guided by my, my analysis, I, I, I discovered that the way I have approached the trans phenomenon in 2010 would not be the same way I would approach it today. And this is what uh, I developed in this book, that my position uh, from a theoretical perspective uh, has changed in a significant point. Uh, I don't know if I could elaborate on that. If, uh, yes, please, please. Sure. I mean, maybe just, uh, we'll, we'll yes. get into it, I'm sure, but maybe you could just give a little preview now. The preview was that I was a little, maybe skewed in my position. I was, like most psychoanalysts, I was too focused on issues of gender and sexuality. And I, I didn't realize that uh, behind uh, maybe an apparent complaint, a symptom that seemed to be an issue uh, around simply gender, in fact, there was a much more uh, general, much more universal a problem that have to do with issues of existence that uh, mm. for many transgender people is about being able to exist. It's a new way of being and that related to issues of embodiment and, and at times in some extreme cases experience as issues of life and death. So that in a way transformed dramatically how I think of uh, transgender. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you say that. I remember uh, we were chatting at an event. Um, I mean, I can see that, by the way, that before I say this, <laughs> that the book is definitely going toward that, and it, you leave that for the last couple chapters, and you really, um, that's really much, very much developed in the last, you know, several chapters. But uh, I do remember we were chatting at this event a few years ago, and you told me you were writing this book, and I asked you, I don't know if you remember this, but I asked you then, like, so what's your latest thinking about the process of transitioning and and you said rather sort of enigmatically, or this is what I remembered you saying, that it was about mortality. Exactly. And I, and I had, and I, so I had this fantasy about your thesis uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, that I'm not sure is right, but even after reading the book, but let me just sort of, I wonder if you could comment on it. So it seemed to me that you implied um, that when the body feels alien to oneself, it can feel immortal. Uh, that mortality is something we achieve when we assume a sexed body. So paradoxically, when you are a body and you don't have a body, your organs, your skin, bones feel immortal, and your suicide is without consequence. The body exists with or without you. It's not identified with you. And so in transitioning and taking ownership of your body, you become mortal in a way and perhaps yes. no longer suicidal. Mm -hmm. And you, relate, you related this to this performance artist which, whose name escapes me now, but uh, who made a video of their transition. Mm -hmm. Maybe, so maybe you can, if I, have I distorted your thesis there or is oh, no, it? Yeah, yeah, in a way that this is the wonderful thing of writing because uh, 
in a way, the book is rewritten through the reader. <laughs> and, and, and I'm a very good reader. And indeed, I, I, I was feeling all along uh, that, that the, the issues uh, that the trans people are putting forward is about uh, mortality. And it's interesting, this, uh, uh, one hears that when maybe an analysis says, if I would not have transition, I will be dead by now. I will have committed mm. suicide. We could also see that in the very high rate of suicidal attempts within those identified as trans, which is really very uh, shocking. The, for the general population, the rate of suicide is around 4%. For those who identify as trans, the rate goes up to 41% which is wow. very worrisome. And as a clinician, this is something uh, that is important to, to, to address and to try to account for. And it has to do with what you're saying, that paradoxically, uh, being a body not fully embodied, uh, in that to, to, to make the body come alive, you need to accept the fact that that body is mortal. And, and if we think of a suicide, it's a very enigmatic phenomenon, suicide, and every person who is in the desperate situation that, that may attempt against their life uh, has, nevertheless, often a certain hope that by killing themselves, they're going to solve something, which is unhappily an illusion, because once that person has died, there is no point of return. But there is often, and this is something uh, qu quite uh, puzzling, that uh, often people before uh, committing suicide may go to the hairdresser, get very well dressed, that there is an idea that this will be a solution that in a way, is not such a thing because then life ends for that person and, and, and the situation is not at all solved. And, uh, but there is this illusion of immortality, that there would be an after that, in a way, justifies the suicidal gesture. And, and, and I think that uh, for many people, transition is a, a way of finding a way to live, a solution, choosing life and not death, which mm. is, I think, something that takes a lot of courage for someone who may feel that up to that point, life is uh, unlivable. And, and this is one of the, the ideas that I work uh, in the book, the idea of a livable embodiment, that mm -hmm. uh, embodiment makes life livable. And, and the, the example you were uh, mentioning of uh, the artist is uh, that I develop in, in particular in one chapter. Uh, um, their name is Swift Shuckers. Who, who I think has a part of uh, their project is this dumb body uh, carved out of meat. And you can see how a body is reduced not, in, not even to organs, just to meat. There is something dehumanized in, in, uh, in a body that could become uh, um, meat, the way we would refer to the animals, those who are not vegetarian, eat. And, uh, and so that that dumb body carved out of meat could, through this uh, wonderful art project that they have, become a livable, livable flesh and, and, and a body that, that could survive. And, uh, and, and, and that, I think, is a more interesting way of thinking and, and in a way, points to a sort of uh, universality that any living being, all of 
all of <laughs> us, in a way, uh, confront that. Uh, in a way, what one learns from those who had a presumed gender trouble, uh, the presumed gender trouble of transgender people, is uh, in fact a sort of universal condition. Mm. And, and there is something that uh, has to do with the fact that we all have to confront our own mortality, we all have to inhabit our sexual body. And that, in a sense, is not the exclusive province of trans persons, but is universal. It's an, it's an impossibility that is uh, universal for all people. That, that, that there is something in them, because we speak, because we have language, that we we separate from our body, and that mm. for the unconscious, another thing the unconscious has a lot of trouble with is with representing our own mortality, with accepting the fact that we are going to die. We know it, but we pretend we don't, and we forget about it. Mm -hmm. So uh, embodiment has to do maybe with assuming that uh, thing that the unconscious cannot fully represent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, so... As you just said, we, we all as speaking beings have trouble assuming a body. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, are, there are, well, this is, okay. Are there specific issues at stake uh, for your trans patients, though, that hinge on the symbolization of sex, having rather than being a body, and, and the nodding of what Lacan calls the santome? Um, is this, you know, is this something that is... Uh, you, maybe you can explain what the Santom is. Is this something unique to trans experience, or is this something that we can, you know, universalize? And if we universalize it, you know, as you say, do we risk kind of erasing the trans, or do we, you know, it's this kind of um, problem we often have with, you know, uh, making something, um, you know, theorizing a, a certain kind of phenomenology or a certain experience, and then the danger of then losing its uniqueness, you know, losing a sense of its uniqueness. Yeah, that's why one of the, the, the titles of, of the chapters in the book is the uh, singular universality oh, of trans, which is this paradox. How could you be at the same time universal and singular? But, but this, is, this is exactly how, uh, in a way, we could think about uh, every time we have a new analysis on the couch, is somebody uh, unique, singular, and, and that will never be repeated. On the other hand, there are certain structural elements, there are certain mm. cultural and historical overdeterminations that exceed uh, and, and, and could be seen in more than one specific case and could be repeated. And in that sense, uh, for instance, the, the unconscious impossibility of representation of sexuality or of mortality is something that anyone who speaks will have trouble with. So in that sense, it is universal. The way each person will experience that trouble will be unique. And it will mm. have a specific uh, presentation and, and the way it would be ignored by the subject, the way it will be maybe rediscovered, reclaimed, suffer or, or overcome, it will be specific to one person in particular, which is, I think, the, for instance, if we pick up one famous uh, phrase of Lacan, the unconscious structure like a language, uh, we think that indeed, Language is a universal structure. Nobody owns language. Nobody can suddenly 
decide to change language. One is born into a language that precedes one's arrival into the life, and it will survive one's own life. So there is this external and social uh, uh, sphere. At the same time, it's unique how each person will be affected by language, how each unconscious will be structured, how trauma will be inscribed for every specific person. And and regarding trans, I, I find it very illustrative. That's why the, the title of the book is Transgender Psychoanalysis. In a way, what I try to, to, to say to, to psychoanalysts is that if we keep analytically or alerted ears, if we pay attention to what the trans experience is saying, we may be able to see something that uh, is not only for trans people, but for everyone else. And in that sense, what my strategy there is to try to depathologize the trans experience. Because uh, unhappily, psychoanalysis has a very bad record of uh, pathologizing non-normative expressions of sexuality. For a long time, for instance, homosexuality was considered a terrible pathology that needed to be cured. And, and uh, in a way, psychoanalysts seem to have forgotten basic psychoanalytic ideas put forward by Freud, saying that heterosexuality and homosexuality are, are equally contingent uh, object right. choices and we cannot account for either of them and neither homosexuality nor heterosexuality uh, can be considered uh, more normal or less normal or even a model of health and they are just contingent outcomes and and in the same uh, way I think what by but by universalizing the trans experience what I'm trying to say is let's forget the pathology this is not an exception but this is one possible outcome. I don't know if that is not, it's not a, a pathology in the sense of a, a deviation, but that rather if there is a norm, it is deviation itself. Mm -hmm. every, every case is exceptional in a sense, you've seen that. Yeah. Right. I mean, actually, you know, so last fall, a few of us at IPTAR hosted a workshop on transgender identities. And you were one of the presenters invited to speak, and you said something very similar, you know, then because you're, you were talking about your book, um, that many analysts, you know, still assume that transgender expression uh, indicates an underlying pathology like, mm -hmm. like psychosis even or borderline um, mm -hmm. disorders, and that many cis analysts, you know, with some notable exceptions, are, are sort of still woefully ignorant about the challenges of transition and not always sensitive to the, to the daily physical threat and discrimination faced by trans um, and gender fluid people. So, but still, I mean, you know, again, as you point out um, in the book, actually, you say that many trans people do, do um, go to therapy, that they're in some form of talk therapy despite being dissatisfied with it, and, and then they avoid... Sometimes uh, some avoid psychoanalysis because they feel rejected, understandably, by it or misunderstood. Um, so maybe I'm just wondering how you see. Uh, it's like um, maybe a maybe something. Please tell our listeners what psychoanalysis, or specifically Lacanian psychoanalysis, has to offer trans-identified people as opposed to other treatment modalities. Because I feel like. There's a, just a lot of resistance because psychoanalysis, as you said, is just not has not been very kind um, 
Yeah, has not, has, has, has not been very kind of has been in a way that uh, I found doing some research that most trans people describe their experience with psychoanalysis as catastrophic. And indeed, when you are rejected to the level of pathology and abjection, your experience cannot be really very positive. On the other hand, I think psychoanalysis, and this would be maybe... Uh, we need to make a differentiation between the institutionalization of psychoanalysis mm, mm-hmm. and maybe the medicalization of psychoanalysis, that the history of psychoanalysis was, in a way, the, the potential of psychoanalytic theory had been, in a way, limited and, and, and happily the clinical practice distorted by the psychoanalytic institutions. But if you maybe go back to early psychoanalytic texts, uh, Freud's three essays uh, on, on sexual theory, you have there elements that could allow you to think about sexuality, about gender, in ways that could be extremely helpful for those who may experience what we may call gender trouble, who may have trans experience, that psychoanalysis has that potential. And, and what I discovered, to, to my surprise, doing research for the book was that early on in the history of psychoanalysis, what then became the clinic of a, a sex change and, and the early psychoanalyst, the first psychoanalyst in the world, and, they were, and even Freud himself was extremely interested in uh, sexology at the time, uh, was interested in, and, and he discusses, if you look at Freud's complex works, you find many references to uh, the works of uh, his then contemporary Steiner, who was a pioneer in the clinic of sex change, that psychoanalysis and what we may call transgender discourse were collaborating closely at the beginning of the 20th century and unhappily because of the prejudice, personal prejudice of psychoanalysts, that collaboration was cut short. But that there is, I think, in, in psychoanalytic theory an, an ethics of sexual difference, in particular in the Lacanian uh, modality with what you mentioned in passing, the no, notion of the symptom, which is a symptom that is no longer a symptom as a pathology, but rather a creative solution. If we think that a symptom could be something that could make life livable, mm. and Lacan uses uh, an old archaic uh, orthography of, uh, of uh, the word symptom and calls it symptom, is still a symptom in the sense of maybe being a compromised solution, as Freud calls symptom, but a symptom that is no longer something to get rid of, something that could maybe make you suffer, but rather something that could allow you to live. And, and, and that would go back to what we were discussing before about mortality and finding ways of being, that maybe being transgender, like being cis or being identified with uh, maybe in between the binary of genders, could be ways of being that allow, uh, allow someone to live in, in their body. And, and this, I think psychoanalysis can think that way and can hear that way. That even if we look at the fundamental rules, say whatever comes to mind is regarding whether or not it's inconvenient, offensive, uh, allows for that freedom that could be extremely helpful for someone who may have a transgender expression, for instance. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I this brings me to something. When when we speak about, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not being coy here. When we speak about trans, what are we even speaking about? Because you know, you say this a couple of times in your book, and you just mentioned non-binary identification. You know, like Schreiber, Laverne Cox, Caitlyn Jenner, Kraft Ebbing's patients from the 19th century. You know, they can all be called trans, but is it, you know, is it fruitful to place them together? I was wondering, like, because also, you know, it's it's my impression, and it could just be my impression, um, that more people than say five years ago or in 2010 um, are choosing to identify as as gender fluid or gender, you know, or, or trans, but not male or female. So fewer people say today things like, I was born in the wrong body, or I have a female brain, like, but otherwise a male anatomy, as Jenner once said. Uh, you know, more people in, insist on a non-binary identification. Do you, I mean, do you think it's becoming harder to generalize about transgender experience or expression? Um, what do you... What do you think about yeah, well, that? What I was thinking, for instance, that when that's one uh, way we from with the famous case of uh, Schreber, who felt that suddenly he felt that he was uh, all his life he had lived uh, male identified, he had lived as a man, and all of a sudden he felt that he was becoming a woman, but not mm-hmm. just any woman. Uh, he was going to become God's wife. He ended up institutionalized with the diagnosis of paranoia. He managed to um, fight back. He wrote his memoirs. And by way of the memoirs, he was able to go on trial, on trial and prove that he could live in society, that he didn't need to be institutionalized. And as one thought I had... Would Schreber have been born today? Maybe if he could have lived a trans life freely. <laughs> and I, I think that and we are in moments of, of, of change and, and unhappily many uh, of the civil rights advancements that uh, we were almost taken for granted as, a, as a permanent changes are being challenged, like the inclusion of trans persons in the military, in the case of the U.S. I'm thinking that perhaps this democratizing of the trans phenomena, in a way, could allow those who cannot identify clearly as male or female, or that the binary that may work for some cis person may not they may not feel identified with that, they may not feel represented, could find a way to exist. And, and, uh, and, and my impression is that there is a positive aspect in, in, in this democratizing of the trans experience. That, uh, and indeed, I think that the difficulty we may have in universalizing, uh, in the sense that if we use the idea of universalization to erase difference and uniqueness, then we are maybe reproducing a sort of fascistic model. Mm. If we use the idea of universalization to maybe account for something that may be structural rather than a, a deviance, because often, uh, and this is some big scene of psychoanalysis, uh, something new, something different has been considered pathological, wrong, that needed to be corrected, rather than maybe seeing it as one possible way of embodiment. 
And in that sense, it's interesting even in the terminology we're sharing. We no longer think in terms of a, a healthy, normal, abnormal, but rather possibilities, contingent mm. possibilities. And in that sense, I, I would I applaud personally the, tran the democratization of trans because it allows for many people perhaps to have a, to have a life. And, and, and some of the, the research done recently has identified on the one hand the statistics, sovereign statistics. I was talking about 41% suicidal rate. Uh, um, we have that. On the other hand, we have some studies that uh, some, there are these transnational studies done in several geographical locations, Canada, Mexico, and uh, I think many different countries. I, I don't recall exactly the list, but it has been uh, widely researched, the fact that for many trans-identified people, the main source of psychic suffering was the pathologization of their experience. Mm. That there wasn't... Wow. So yeah. it is important, I think, we have a responsibility, an ethical responsibility as uh, practitioners not to jump onto pathologization before we hear where is this person talking from, what, what is this uh, accounting for. And, and, and if you are talking about a symptom, maybe it could be something they bring to the treatment and want to get rid of. But if we are talking about a symptom, maybe this is a solution they found to make life livable. Mm -hmm. and, and in that sense, it betrays a certain uh, artistry, a certain know-how that lets them live a life. And, and, and this is something uh, quite creative and, and admirable. So we are, in a way, thinking, I think psychoanalysis allows us to, to see and think about the clinical practice in a way that we could easily avoid falling into... Um, uh, simple simplifications, because I think certain jumping into saying, "Oh, everyone who is tra trans is has to be psychotic," is uh, making too simple and too easy something that may, on the other hand, require a little more careful listening, a little more thinking. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you say this in the book, uh, that there are psychotic, perverse, and neurotic trans people, just like there are perverse, neurotic, psychotic cis people, right? Yes, so, absolutely, I mean, yes. So, but on the other hand, but this is, again, again, we're, this is the trick, though, also, though, that you say, um, you know, trans people, you know, teach psychoanalysis something, so... Um, if we're trying to productively kind of theorize a trans structure, can we think about it as a structure, uh, or is it... Because the syntomic construction could be, you know, it could be mine, yours, anybody. So that, that, you know, I was thinking, is there, can we locate trans in like Lacan's sexuation formula? <laughs> you know, can we, can we somehow th or think about it as something akin to a hysterical structure? Um, or, you know, so I think in the book there, there does seem to be some ambiguity there or ambivalence mm -hmm. about, mm -hmm. you know, going full, you know, yes, going in that direction Fully. Like you sort of intimate it, but then you pull back from ultimately kind of theorizing it. Um, what I don't, I don't do because I, I don't believe I, that there is such a thing as a trans structure. I believe mm -hmm. that there are trans symptoms. And again, I think of them in symptoms as manifestations. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could be for some people, could be a source of tremendous suffering. 
uh, maybe someone who may have a psychotic structure, and I have, have encountered that in my practice, may uh, experience the something that sort of drive into becoming, in case where cis, uh, I'm thinking of two or three cases in particular that have right now in my mind, uh, that they were thinking the, that even though they were born and identify and assign as male, they felt they were becoming women and there was this sort of push, mm. sort of drive that was making their life terrible and they were suffering a lot. So in that sense, it was a symptom that was making their life very difficult. On the other hand, I had heard many times that if I would not have transition, I would be dead. So then becoming trans was a way of living, a way of embodying their bodies, it's a solution in the sense of finding a way to be that was not allowed before. So what I would rather say, and, and, and I hope I made that clear in the book, perhaps not, is that I think of trans symptoms, not uh -huh. a trans structure. And as symptoms, one may find people uh, talking of uh, trans uh, uh, expressions within a structure of so-called normality, and I would ascribe to that a hysteric structure, or uh -huh. someone with an obsessional and neurotic structure, again, neurotic, so-called normal, uh, so uh, or somebody with a perverse structure, so uh, that I, I could not uh, find a, a way of thinking exclusively of a trans structure, but there are ways of being that could be experienced in different psychic structures. There is no one specific structure. In that sense, I disagree with most Lacanian analysts. Mm. We go back to the person who um, first uh, systematized the idea of uh, what was called then transsexualism, Catherine Mio. She seems to mm -hmm. imply that everyone with a trans expression is psychotic. And I fully disagree. And, and, and happily, I thought this is something she thought in the 80s. Many people, especially in the uh, English-speaking world, have uh, entered into a, a, a dialogical criticism and have uh, rolled back. Uh, and she's still in her recent memoir, which is, was very recently published, uh, My Life with Lacan. Uh, she again uh -huh. makes the same mistake and she uh, has what I feel is a misreading of a famous interview of uh, Lacan with someone who uh, identifies as someone who could be at times male and at times could feel like being female as someone who could not, should not uh, undergo a sex change because nobody undergoing a surgery could become a real woman and if such a thing could ever exist which sounds very anti-Lacanian I don't think Lacanian Lacan who would say could, one of his famous phrases was the woman does not exist but however said you will not become a real woman so <laughs> maybe you could feel like a real woman but never become an in existence to, to quote the, the title of the song so mm. uh, I think it's, it's important to to I, to think of expressions, I think you use that word and it's a welcome one. There are trans expressions in many psychic structures. I couldn't find a sort of a unique structure to all of them. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you do, though, so use uh, the, the term transgender, transgender discourse. Yes. 
And, and it's important because it, it, I would say transgender discourse, talking about maybe what is produced in culture, what we read in the newspaper. And that made my completing this book a little bit of a nightmare because this, this tsunami I referred to at the beginning of our conversation was that every day with my breakfast uh, coffee, I would open the New York uh -huh. Times and every day there was something on the news about someone trans or a trans-related issue. That would be one aspect of the transgender discourse. And then there is the transgender discourse in, in terms of what is being published. Transgender discourse, maybe what brought, as you mentioned earlier, is a wonderful event at Iptar that was extremely well attended. And, and there, I, I felt very happy after that Sunday mm -hmm. because I heard analysts who were, in a way, aware of this complicated history and they wanted to to talk about these issues to rethink and and to be ready to welcome in the practice people with this kind of presentations without uh, continue making the mistakes of the olden times and i think that uh, that's in itself a good ethical psychoanalytic position that one could learn from the experience and and let themselves being guided by what the analysis bring Mm -hmm. right, which, right. which is, I think, what makes our work very interesting, that we, the, the, the couch is a sort of window to what happens in society, and that would be what I call discourse, that we see things happening at times five or ten years before we will read about the, them in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, let me, let me just uh, maybe switch it up a little bit um, from discourse to... Well, this is related. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about aesthetics. Uh, mm -hmm. There's, there's a, a big part of the book, and I, I don't want to sort of um, forget about this part, deals with beauty, plasticity, and you link that to mortality embodiment, and you think all of these things together, and you say that your trans patients have sort of enabled you to make these connections. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I started being uh, intrigued by the fact that uh, often the, 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 the bodily transformation for those who may move from one gender to another was uh, always predicated under the idea of being beautiful, that somehow beauty granted a sense of maybe security, uh, could allow the person to pass. Uh, and I was wondering, what did that, what kind of beauty were we talking about? Was the beauty of maybe a denial of castration, a, a beauty that uh, was hiding the fact that we'll die, or on the other hand, maybe something uh, about the fleeting quality of beauty? Because maybe when we look at the flower and we look at it and we are moved by its beauty, it's also because we know that that beautiful flower will fade. And that what we are admiring is something very transient. So that in a way what could have been read as a beauty as a sort of mask, as trying to conceal the fact that maybe behind the very well done makeup or the beautiful muscles and, and uh, the perfect uh, chest, there is also this uh, fleeting quality that precisely when we're talking about embodiment, could allow us to relate to the fact that mm, that beauty will, know, will, will not be there forever. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that something that, that is beautiful because it will end. 
But what's also interesting that our, our, our aesthetic pleasure and admiration of beauty is something that is uh, pleasurable, that it creates a, a good feeling. So in a way, allow us to tolerate the fact that that beautiful flower with faith, because it is beautiful now. So let, allow us also to relate to temporality differently. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, yeah, and, and with, actually with regard to beauty, um, to take it back to the uh, to sort of trans patients, um, I noticed in the book, for whatever reason, that your patients are mostly when you give your own cases, they're mostly trans men, and the trans women in the book uh, tend to be sort of celebrities and who are very focused on beauty um, or historical cases. So, and yet you often, you know, you write as many, many do, uh, as if there was like a symmetry or homology between the issues and experiences of trans men and trans women. So if we were to sort of, um, I'm just, I wanted to question this a little bit. I mean, do you think that there might be an asymmetry in the experience um, or, or difference? Because, I mean, on, even on the experiential level, right, there seems to be a potential asymmetry since if you transition from male to female in our culture, you lose status for one thing. The parameters of, of sort of realness, um, so-called, are narrower for both cis and trans women. So the criteria for beauty and imperatives of femininity, et cetera, you know, they require access to plastic surgery, fashion. So issues of class figure more prominently for trans women um, than maybe trans men. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of throwing it out there that there's, mm-hmm. and that there's more of a threat of violence potentially just walking down the street for a trans woman than for a trans man, maybe, maybe. Um, so the, this is the experiential asymmetry, but maybe there are other asymmetries, like you know, this you you, you reference Lacan's famous pronouncement, "Woman does not exist." You know, is there something more difficult about about transitioning, um, you know, in that direction to becoming a woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware because I, I as I was writing, I brought up examples that could. Uh, relate to whatever issue I was discussing in each particular chapter. And it occurs to me now talking with you that perhaps uh, I may have unconsciously chosen to represent more cases of trans men because they seem to have been more invisible. There is much more written about trans women that it has been about trans men and uh, and often trans men I, I don't think there is a symmetry in the experience because I haven't found as I told you before I haven't found a, a trans structure where I could talk about this is what the trans experience is about I would need this is what the trans experience was for this person and this was the mm. trans experience for this other analysis and this I think is is the, the wonderful thing of our clinical world that each case is it's a new case, and, and Freud, when he said you need to relearn psychoanalysis every time you meet a patient, and every new patient is, is a whole universe in that sense. If we were talking about universalization. And, uh, and perhaps uh, in terms of class, yes, it is true. I agree with you that probably a trans woman of color would uh, have more chances of being killed for being a trans woman than maybe a trans white man, and that maybe... Uh, I, I, I was recently given the, the reverse anecdote that would confirm one of your points that was a trans woman who was in the science, in, in doing science 
and somebody uh, runs into her and, and identifies the last name and said, oh, I read work by your, by your uh, brother, uh, uh, but, uh -huh. but he, his work was stronger than yours <laughs> because... Wow. Because it's, and the reverse as well, that when the work was uh, for now a, a, a trans man, is oh, your work is stronger, whereas the work of your sister wasn't as good. So it's very interesting how, in a way, uh, social prejudice continues and is not stopped by the trans experience. So indeed, the, the, the unique experience of transition will not be the same uh, because we live in a society that ascribes to uh, each gender certain attributions that have been very questioned by, by research, by science, by many studies, but they, they continue to, to, to exist. Um, and so in that sense, and, and, and the cases, what I found that uh, was uh, is interesting in terms of uh, class, uh, it is true that maybe it's more visible the issue of beauty for uh, trans women or this certain expectation that the trans woman should look in a certain way but this is also maybe uh, distorted by the the public eye that for instance if we look at uh, Caitlyn Jenner as the model of a trans woman it is one type of trans woman I had had trans women in my practice that may embody a different a different form of femininity they are a diff it's a different way of being a woman and, and, and in that sense, we go back to the phrase, the woman does not exist uh, because there are women, not the woman. Maybe I'm tempted to coin with your help the idea the transsexual does not exist. There are transsexuals. So for uh -huh. some, the embodiment may be very important. I had worked with trans men for whom it was extremely important to have a perfect a chest, big muscles, and look extremely fit. And for others, was just uh, being comfortable in their bodies, and and had they didn't need to be lifting weights every day and be uh, maybe fitting in a specific form of masculinity. Mm -hmm. So, in that mm -hmm. sense, there there, are, there is no universal. And in that sense, going back to the formula of sexuation. Uh, what is interesting, and that's one maybe big issue, perhaps <laughs> impossible for us to cover uh, today, <laughs> but one, one interesting thing for psychoanalysis uh, that we can learn from the trans experience, I, I always say learn from transgender and not apply psychoanalysis to transgender people, that we learn is that um, when Lacan talks about sexuation, he talks about ways of being that don't, are not over-determined by body contours, but the way one may relate to this very controversial notion of the phallus. And often trans people can assume a sexual embodiment without fully relying on the phallus. And that's very original uh, in terms of how to think psychoanalytically and also politically, because it escapes all these mandates. Uh, in a way, certain forms of femininity could be very phallic, uh, and there are other forms of femininity that are not all subjected to the phallus. So also it, then, in a sense, yes? you have named a kind of structural aspect of trans, potentially. Uh, just a way of, I don't want to overgeneralize, you know, it's not my intention to talk about trans experience as a monolithic anything, <laughs> believe me. But, but yeah, just something in the, is to be able to talk about uh, these experiences in a way that, that might be, 
you know, productive theoretically, I think that's a perfect way. So, so there's a way of evading the phallic, the relationship to the phallus, maybe. Mm -hmm. A way of thinking about sexual differently without fully relying on mm. the phallus. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, something very intriguing for people uh, working on gender studies and, 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 and people who may want to think of different forms of sexuality. Right. Um, yeah. The, the, you know, there's one issue that uh, this makes me, you know, the singularity of each case, the, your emphasis on this makes me think of this uh, clinical issue that... Um, trans analysis sort of report and, and uh, you know, there's, there's this danger uh, that it seems to me like, and, and Avgi, Sakatapulu, Griff, Hansberry, Jack Pula, they have, I think they've written or talked about this in their own ways, that when a trans person is in analysis, the counter-transference is such that all of their problems get linked to being trans. So, for example, if they have problems with, you know, dependency, aggression, that's because they're trans or they have narcissistic issues. It's like linked to the transition. So uh, transition. Um, I mean, what do you think about this? This um, is this a problem for trans patients? I mean, obviously, maybe not with you, but do you encounter? Do you hear about this? I think it's a problem for the analysts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why I, I insist on transgender <laughs> psychoanalysis? I think uh, the way you describe it sounds uh, like the. Analysis is only able to listen to the analytic material uh, in a certain way without maybe seeing why is this analysis talking about this and, and it may or may not be related to the transition. Mm -hmm. that, uh, on the one hand, you have a, some very keen uh, describers of the trans experience like Jay Proser, who says that transition is uh, something as consuming as a career. It's mm. not a consumeristic lifestyle choice. Oh, I, I move to the suburbs, I become vegan, mm -hmm. I change my sex. Not at all. It is totally all-consuming. And this could maybe distract uh, an, an experienced analyst, but if the analyst is careful and listening, could maybe hear that maybe for this analysis. The transition is something very important, but this life may not be reduced only to that. There may be other things going on, and mm -hmm. that maybe they need to be paid attention to in, in the dimension that may occupy. In a way, it's as if their fascination, and that's why I was saying a problem for the analyst, that they, they may get fascinated with the trans expression and forget and stop uh, being able to listen to, to what is that this analysis is talking about? Right. That yes, may, I, I, may, you're right. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think that be. is a problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and in that sense, I think it is important maybe to overcome a sort of temptation to fetishize the, the mm -hmm. trans experience. And, and that's why maybe I insist on these ideas of universalization that, that it is that the trans experience is. A, a way of seeing more clearly something that, in a way, we can see many other in many other forms of embodiment. So it is not something to to get so hooked on, and maybe should not be a reason to to become deaf in the office. Hmm. Right. No, that that's a very I think important message um, for for people. Okay, so be, uh, we're almost out of time. Um, but uh, before we go, I wanted to ask you what you're, if you're working on anything now. 
Yeah, it was a, yeah. quietly la laughing when you said uh, so far two two collections uh, we <laughs> I'm working on <laughs> yes exactly on, on on two more edited collections. One uh, wow. that is connected with uh, you mentioned this wonderful documentary by Basia Vinograd. Uh, there is a little clip available on YouTube, a teaser, and also <laughs> available for free on Pep Web. And then uh, the the whole documentary is available for downloading. Uh, and, and now Pep offers a sort of day pass like Netflix. So for those who oh, may really? not have a Pep subscription could still uh, have access to this really wonderful documentary because it has many interesting testimonies of clinicians doing psychoanalysis in the barrio but also uh, interesting interviews on, on, on the sidewalk in the barrio from people and, and, and you see that how, how open they are to, to psychoanalytic interventions and, and, and I go back to this phrase I said many times that people may be poor but they're not too poor, they cannot afford to have an unconscious. So mm -hmm. as an offspring of that with a, a, a Chris Christian, we are working on a collection on psychoanalysis in the barrios uh, with uh, contributions by clinicians, uh, cultural historians, uh, anthropologists to maybe expand a sort of companion to what the experience of psychoanalysis in El Barrio is described in that documentary. And another project I have also with my collaborator, Mania Steinkoller, with whom we did Lacan on Madness and Lacan Psychoanalysis and Comedy, uh, precisely dealing with issues of uh, gender and sexuality from a psychoanalytic perspective, because it felt maybe uh, two years ago we would have thought that um, to discuss uh, gender, sexuality, even the ideas of feminism, it was not necessary anymore. And happily, <laughs> these things are now uh -huh. have have resurged with with an urgency that that we could not have imagined a year ago. So this is in another collection we are working on. So mm -hmm. I have other and, and there are other projects in the back burner, but when when they come through, they are more evolved. I think I'll, I'll be quite busy with these two collections for the time being. So. Right. Well, it's it's exciting. Maybe maybe we'll, you'll come back to the show. You can come yeah, back at any time. It would be lovely yeah. too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I um, great. I've been talking to uh, Patricia Garavici about her book, Transgender Psychoanalysis: A Lacanian Perspective on Sexual Difference. Thank you again, Patricia. Thank you, Anna. It's been a great pleasure. Great. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Till next time. <laughs>